I, I told uh, Pastor Rags when I got started, I've got uh, a lengthy lecture for tonight, but I, I said, you know, when you've got somebody coming uh, from another place that uh, has never been be- here before and you don't know who I am, it's kind of like you helicopter in and you go out. And I thought, well, let me take a little time to tell you about myself, not that I'm interested in myself, but it would be good for you to know where I, I, I come from. I... Uh, was born March 1st, 1942, so if you do your math, I'm 76 years old, and uh, uh, so I'm progressing along the way. I was born in Los Angeles, California. Got somebody from L.A.? All right. Oh, right here, too. And uh, it was during the war, obviously, 42, right after uh, December 7th, 1941. My father was in the Marines, and... Uh, but he'd been in the Marines for some years, almost a decade at that time, uh, a career Marine enlisted man. And when the war started, he went to Camp Pendleton and trained Marines for the duration of the war. So my father never saw any action, though he was a lifetime, well, uh, sergeant, drill sergeant in the Marine Corps. Uh, married my mother, who was about a decade younger than him. Uh, during the war, so I came in 42, my brother came in 44, he got out, got to go, go on the GI Bill, went to work in the oil fields of Long Beach, California, got killed in an industrial accident. So I left my mother with these little guys uh, in 1946. The great thing is, I had his, my father's mother, Rose Hughes, and uh, Hoyle, his dad, were Christians that prayed for us for all that distance from the Carolinas to L.A. Came out and helped take care of us. My father also had a couple of kind of aunts who prayed for us. So we had people that cared for us, my, my struggling mother with these little boys. One experience that I have from, from my childhood was when I was six years old, I was taking the corner of Hill and Figueroa in Los Angeles to a big tent with sawdust, and I heard Billy Graham preach as a six-year-old. Now, I didn't know what was going on. I saw the lights, saw this slender evangelist and so on, and thought it was all wonderful, but I'm starting to give you the sense that I've been around for a long time. That's 1948, Hill and Figueroa in Los Angeles. The other thing is that uh, when I was a teenager, I had uh, lunch with Louis Zamperini. You know who that is? And I'll tell you what, he was like the Energizer Bunny. He always was talking, always enthusiastic about the gospel and would talk to anyone about Jesus. So I go back a little bit. I began to long for the Lord. We got into a church that was preaching the gospel. It was just a a church of about 40 people. I was the only uh, 12-year-old in the church. It was all young families. And I came to realize as a 12-year-old that I didn't know the Lord. Um, It was like like you're standing on the outside of the windows and you're looking into a warm, well-lighted church and you're going, those people, they, they know the Lord. They talk about the Lord. They talk about Jesus. And how could that ever happen to me? So I, I came to understand that. You sometimes think about a junior high boy. How does he, how does he get those things? I did. And uh, I wanted to know the Lord. And so it was in the summer of 1955, uh, before I went into high school, I went to a camp in the Sierras, and at the end of the service, I said to the pastor, uh, I, I, I don't think I know the Lord. I don't know what words I used. I was inarticulate. And he sat down with me on the front row, a, a building just about this size in the Sierras, and he opened, had me open my Bible, my little King James Bible, to Romans 10, 9, and 10, where I read that if thou shalt confess, in the King James, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead, 
thou shalt be saved. And I was telling Pastor Rag and others today, I believe it was like those words came right off the page into my eyes, into my brain, into my heart, and I was marvelously regenerated. I mean, I was born again. I was only 12 and a half years old. And I remember going back to my sleeping bag that night. I'd been in that same sleeping bag for a week. And you know what a 12-year-old sleeping bag smells like at the end of camp? And uh, like the inside of a tennis shoe. And, uh, and I underlined that the uh, several verses, Romans 10, 9, and 10, with a red pencil. Philippians 1, 6, he who has begun a good work in you will continue the day of Jesus Christ. And a couple other verses by my flashlight. I still have that little India page Bible with those, the marks of my salvation that night all those years ago in 1955. And uh, God worked in my heart and I just wanted to be a preacher from the time I got saved. And so I, I uh, announced to everyone in a high voice that I was called to preach. And, but it was a serious thing to me. Went into high school, just, a, just an average high school boy who liked sports and liked the beach. I was in California, um, all that sort of thing, but it was really important to me. In fact, I used to carry my Bible, a red Bible, around the top of my books, so people had asked me about it. And if you want to hear something really corny, this was my line. They'd say, oh, what is that? And, and I would show them it was a red Bible, and then I would say, every Bible should be read. And so then I'd get a chance to talk to them about Jesus. Um, I was a, a normal high school boy. Some of you men older, I had, a, I had a 41 Ford, primered, big racing slicks on the back, um, uh, a three-speed LaSalle transmission, if you know what that is, uh, a flathead that was built by the best flathead specialists in Southern California, but it was a Christian hot rod because I had pinstriped on the side uh, a hot rod burning rubber, and it said, Swing Low Sweet Chariot. So that was my, my car as a teenage boy. So I was just an uh, average boy, but I love the Lord. was at church. It was my family. Before there was ever a youth group, it was a family. preached my first sermon when I was 16 on Jonah and the whale. The title of my sermon was, uh, God has a whale of a plan for your life. And uh, let's put it this way. It was a, a sermon of dubious wit and doubtful quality. But the mere doing of it when you're 16, people will pat you on the head and say, you're going to be a preacher someday. And I was, so I was encouraged. Uh, preached some in the streets of Los Angeles. Uh, uh, I got out of high school uh, with open-air campaigners. Uh, went to local college. Married my wife, Barbara, during the first year. Uh, our first daughter came a year later. We had four children in five years. So all of a sudden I had a family. I was 26 years old and I had, we had all of our children and uh, called to the ministry. So I just want you to know that I, I, uh, I worked hard during those years. I worked as, as on a swing shift in Los Angeles loading boxcars and doing college and then seminary until the church hired me as a youth pastor. So that began my ministry, which basically coincides with the 60s. Now, Robin Williams has a famous quotation about the 60s. He said, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. <laughs> well, I, I remember the 60s because I wasn't doing cannabis or drugs. I was doing ministry. And so if you'd have seen this conservative old man back then, you'd have seen bell bottoms, a T-shirt, sideburns, floppy hair, you know, wide belt, sandals, the whole thing. And I usually sat on the floor and taught my students. That's, uh, that's, that's, we didn't use chairs much during the 60s. But it was a great time of evangelism for me as I did seminary, did 
youth ministry during the 60s. Um, I've got stories I can tell you from the 60s, but I, I won't repeat them. But I will tell you that because I was in the 60s, it wasn't Robin Williams that made it up. It was George Carlin. Some of you old guys know who George Carlin was. That was the dude who said that. Just want you to know that. Um, I did a decade of youth ministry, so that began my ministry. Then five years of planting a church in the North Orange County area of Los Angeles, close to Disneyland. I could see the fireworks at Disneyland at night. A wonderful experience and a terrible experience. Very, very interesting time of life. And then in 1979, I got called at College Church in Wheaton, which is an old church, 125 years old, across the street from Wheaton College, a lot of missionaries from that church and so on. And that began a 27-year ministry at College Church where I preached the Bible week after week like the pastor does here and many of your pastors do where I would preach through a whole book of the Bible like uh, 104 sermons on Luke and uh, uh, 24 on Philippians and just that kind of thing, working through the Bible, teaching the Word of God. That was the main thing I did during those years. My children uh, grew. They're all middle-aged today. Uh, four children, Holly, Heather, Kent, and Carrie, uh, and the... Uh, and you, you won't believe this, but 26 grandchildren. Four children, 26 grandchildren. Say, what was in the water? Um, well, what it was is that my children are very concerned about the unborn uh, and abortion. And so 10 of those children are adopted by my children. We've got children adopted from all different races and colors and places in our family. My son's a pastor in Spokane, Washington. My, other, my daughter is married to a pastor, so we've got children in ministry and so on. I say all that to you because I, that, that accounts for 40 years of ministry, eight years of itinerant ministry, and now I've been teaching in seminary, so it's, it's got to be 50. I'm not exaggerating saying 50 years in ministry. I've been married to my wife, Barbara, for 56 years. And... Um, I love the Lord, and I love men, and the opportunity to be with you and speak to you man to man about some important issues in life and spiritual growth which ultimately lead to sanctification is a great privilege, and uh, I am honored to be able to be here. I take it very seriously that... Uh, you men are going to spend an hour and a half or two with me tonight. We're going to all be together for several hours tomorrow. Looks like there's a hundred here, or I can't, I can't tell. I can never tell numbers. But I've got probably 500 hours of your time. And that is a solemn charge to teach the Word in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what I desire for this time, not just speaking but to have the ministry of the Holy Spirit during this time. So, Pastor, I, I'm so thrilled to be here, and I'm going to lead us in prayer before I get started with our subject. Our Father, I thank you for the men that are here. And I know, Father, because of my years with men, there are men here that uh, are facing difficulties tonight. There are other men who have uh, songs of joy because of some good thing that's happened in their life. There are men here that are concerned about their health. There's men that haven't even thought about it. There are men that wonder what next year is going to hold, where they're going to go, who they're going to meet, whatever's going to happen. That there is virtually in this room every kind of emotion and situation. Now what we need, Father, from... Your word and your teaching is the miracle of teaching to have a message which touches each heart here tonight. And we so desire it, our God. We know that this time will never be repeated. 
It can never be bought back with blood or gold. That these minutes, Father, are minutes that you've given to us and ordained for this time. And so I pray for myself that you give me clarity of speech, that I really connect with these men. You give them ears to hear that uh, as they hear me, they wouldn't hear somebody speaking from on high with authority, but another man speaking men, men to men who understands all the passions and all the feelings and what are inside of men. And so, Father, will you help me to communicate in the power of your Holy Spirit and affect the men in this room to your glory in the way that you would desire to do it. In all of this, Father, we do not tell you what to do. We ask you for your grace. But you're always willing to bestow your grace. And there always is more grace. And so we pray for grace to fill these hours and minutes together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is ultimately about sanctification, but the code word we're going to use is godliness because a godly person is a person who's been sanctified by the word of God. Uh, Sometime in the summer before uh, entering junior high school, just a, a boy in L.A., I wandered off the baseball field and onto the tennis court, and I picked up a tennis racket, and I got hooked on the game of tennis. And I began to play all the time. And uh, when you're in seventh grade, you don't have a job. I mean, you can be out all the time. So I picked up that tennis racket, and I would play six hours a day almost every day of the week, right into junior high school and then all through high school. And it wasn't long that I got hooked on the game and became like a little tennis bum. I would wear out a pair of tennis shoes every two weeks and uh, uh, never could afford enough tennis balls to keep, keep playing, playing ball. And so I just loved the game. Uh, nothing like a sweetly hit ball in the morning, the ring of it. Uh, play all the way till you see the shadows change the afternoon and go the other way and then go home and eat dinner and come back when they turn the stadium lights on and play Tennis while the bats dived our lobs. Love the game. Uh, I loved it so much that when I finally got a Davis Imperial tennis racket, I slept with it at night. You know, it was, I cherished that tennis racket. And uh, I became really quite proficient at tennis in the Southern California culture. It was good uh, from the time I stepped onto a high school court till I exited it. And the thing that I learned as a boy through those things, the disciplines of learning that game, is that I learned that personal discipline is indispensable for anything in life. Anything. The legendary Jack Nicklaus, the most successful golfer of all time, people would say that about Nicklaus, once quipped, the more I practice the luckier I get. Right on. Uh, we think about uh, some of the icons in our culture. Michael Phelps, eight gold medals. Eight gold medals at one Olympics. I mean, that, that is absolutely phenomenal as a result of thousands and thousands and miles in the pool of disciplined boredom. Can you imagine all that swimming back and forth again and again and again in chlorine water? No thanks. But that's Michael Phelps. The glory of a Steph Curry three-point shot as the buzzer goes off with somebody hanging on him and he's off balance that goes through and sinks through is because of thousands of hours of rigorous discipline. I just picked up the Wall Street Journal last week, and you know what they said about Curry's practice? Maybe you saw it. That in a normal practice, he first of all puts on this virtual reality headset and tries to see everything. 
Then he goes through all kinds of, of exercises to strengthen his core and breathing exercises. And then he begins to shoot. And he doesn't go in from a practice until he's made 700 hoops. And if he has a rigorous practice, a 1,000. So we wonder at how he can do that. It is a life of incredible discipline. There's a book that came out uh, some time ago, and I'm sharing some stuff I just learned lately, by Matthew Sayed, uh, a British uh, guy. And the name of his book is Bounce, B-O-U-N-C-E. And then the rest of it is Bounce, Mozart, Federer, Picasso, Beckham, and the Science of Success. So he tells the story of the British superstar soccer player, David Beckham, and his famous bend it like Beckham kick, which does this incredible curve down at the end, and it's been the bane of goalies. And he says that Beckham, from the time he was a boy uh, in high school, junior high in high school, he would come home after school, take six soccer balls, go to a park in the east end of London, and he'd stand in the same place and kick them over and over and over and over again until he got that amazing curveball that made him, well, bend it like Beckham. And here's what he said. My secret is practice. I've always believed if you want to achieve anything special in your life, you have to work, work, and then work some more. That's Beckham. Okay, well, that's on the other side of the pond. Let's come to this continent. How about the Canadian icon Wayne Gretzky, regarded as the greatest ice hockey player of all time. Is that, is that not right? The great Gretzky. Oh, and Bobby Orr, okay. That's the Chicago Blackhawks, right? Oh, it's not. Well, he became this because he disciplined both his mind and his body. And when he was a boy, he would watch uh, Canadian hockey on the national television on a black and white screen, and he would sit down with his father, and he would chart all the angles of the shots. I mean, he did this consistently as a boy, trying to figure out where that puck was going to be. And, of course, you know that the great thing about him, the great Gretzky, is that he would be there when the puck got there. That's an amazing thing. And then about his body. He says, and I'm quoting him, I wasn't naturally gifted in terms of size and speed. Everything I did in hockey, I worked for. So I wasn't a big guy, and I didn't have speed. And then later he said, the highest compliment that you can pay me is to say, I worked hard every day. So you begin to see this. You know, I'm, I'm just talking about sports, but it goes into other areas. Michelangelo, Da Vinci's multitudes of sketches, the quantitative discipline of their work prepared the way for their cosmic quality. We wonder at the anatomical uh, perfection of how Da Vinci could draw the body, like the famous Vitruvian man. But what people, many people don't know is that on one occasion, he drew a human hand a thousand times. Times. In our own time, Winston Churchill has been rightly called and proclaimed the speaker of the century, and few have ever heard Winston Churchill's speeches. You know, we have nothing to give but blood, toil, sweat, and tears, and how he kind of withstood the furor on the other side of the channel, you know, with his rhetoric, I mean, his incredible speeches. Few people would suspect that he was anything but a natural. You'd think that Churchill was a natural. Well, the truth is, as a boy, he had a distracting lisp, which made him the butt of jokes by all his contemporaries. Yet he became famous for his speeches and his seemingly impromptu speeches. Here's the deal. Actually, Churchill wrote everything out word for word. He even wrote out pauses where he's 
pretends to be reaching for a word. And then he marked his manuscripts with these things in his margins. Cheers. Hear, hears. Prolonged cheering. Standing ovation. He had all those things in his manuscript, just like you do, right, Pastor? Yeah. And then he practiced everything in mirrors endlessly with his expression and so on, his bulldog expression. And one of his close friends by the name of Effie Smith said, Winston has spent the best years of his life writing impromptu speeches. You know, so he can just stand up and give them. And you've heard some of the stuff that the, uh, Churchill said. This Lady Astor, who was a political enemy of his, you know the story. And uh, she was talking to him at some tea party, and she said, Winston, if I were your wife, I would poison your tea. And he said, Madam, if I were your husband, I would drink it. And uh, so he's quite a guy. And this really goes for every area of life. You think of Thomas Edison with a thousand failures in the incandescent light bulb, right? Until he got it. There's a, there's a, a line, a, a poetic line from Samuel Beckett that I love that speaks to this. Ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again. Fail better. Isn't that great? That is Edison, isn't it? He finally failed better. So I wrote this down. This is something I just wrote recently. We will never get anywhere in life without discipline, if it be the arts, the trades, business, athletics, academics. Whatever your particular thing is, whether it is swimming or football, or soccer, or basketball, or tennis, or surfing, or mountain climbing, or bull riding, or motocross, or chess, or math, or computer science, or the guitar and the sitar. Whether writing or poetry or painting, whatever it is, you will never get anywhere without discipline. That's, that's really kind of a law, isn't it? I mean, a human law, kind of a law of the world, right? But what I want to say is that it is doubly so in spiritual matters. Because in other areas, you can claim maybe an innate uh, talent. For instance, an athlete may be born with a strong body and frame. You know, guys that are born with shoulders that are this wide, and hips that are this narrow, and Legs like tree stumps, you know, they're born like that. Uh, or you can be an artist where you've got, uh, you've got an eye for perspective or a musician that has perfect pitch. I mean, you, you get those things. You can, you can be advantaged that way. But none of us has an innate spiritual advantage because in all reality, we're all equally disadvantaged spiritually. We're all sinners. I read what the Apostle Paul says in Romans, the third chapter, in that long chain, and he says, Of us, men, there are none righteous, no, not one. None seek after God, no, not one. Then it talks about our hands and our heads and our, uh, our lips and our feet. I mean, he, he, he lays it out in the clearest terms that we are sinners through and through. We are innately sinners. We, we, we follow our own uh, passions, and we are sinners. None of us seeks after God. Therefore, as children of God, as believers, I'm speaking to believing men, maybe some here that are not yet believers, Spiritual discipline is everything. And I want to make it clear, it is everything. Now the text I want to talk about and then I want to put in its context is from 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter. 
I'll be looking at it in its context, but it's 1 Timothy 4.7. If spiritual discipline is everything, then the great text regarding that is 1 Timothy 4.7, which says, train yourself to be godly. You see 1 Timothy 4.7? I'll give you time to find it because we're going to be actually looking at chapter 3 and chapter 2 and chapter 4, but I want, I want us to look at the context around that. 1 Timothy 4.7 says, train yourself to be godly. So it has a, it's transcendingly important and it takes on a kind of urgency. There are other passages that teach discipline in Scripture, but this is the great classic text 1 Timothy 4.7, train yourself to be godly, which is the path to sanctification. Now, here's the deal. This word train comes from the Greek word gumnos. That may not sound like anything, but that is the root word that we get gymnasium from or gymnastics from. Same root word. And originally, this word Gumnos meant naked uh, because it re- referenced those Greek games where if you look at those statues where they, they didn't wear any clothes for the sprints, the wrestling or anything, not to be impeded by anything else. So originally the literal meaning was to exercise naked. Now by New Testament times it referred to exercise and training in general. You don't make the root word fallacy. It didn't mean to exercise naked in New Testament times, but that word still had the smell of gym in it. I mean, you can get it. Train yourselves. Exercise, or here's the, here's the one I like if I'm just kind of, kind of tr- to get the idea. Work out for the purpose of godliness. This is a very, I have to say, a, masculine appeal. Train, exercise, work out for the purpose of godliness. That is what Paul is saying. So Paul says, if you're going to be godly, it's going to require some spiritual sweat. So just as athletes discarded everything, we have to get rid of every encumbrance every association, every habit, every tendency that holds us back from godliness. You say, where does it say that? And that's in Hebrews 12, the opening verse, that famous text. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. My, my, uh, the vision I have of this is Heartbreak Hill on the Boston Marathon where bottles are discarded and things are left off as everybody gets rid of everything they possibly can to finish that race, to run well. That's the image. So we will never get anywhere spiritually without conscious divestment of the things that are holding us back, throwing us off, the weight that is is, uh, clinging to us, those sins that so naturally cling to us, throwing them off. That's in the image. The other thing, of course, is energy. Because the call to train ourselves for godliness also suggests directing all of our energy towards godliness. Uh, I think of the Apostle Paul with his incredible theological mind. I mean, the book of Romans is just absolutely phenomenal. He is the great genius and he's the great mind and great theologian of the New Testament. But you know, he had to be a sports fan. He did. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 9, 25 and 27. So, he, he, I mean, he had, to, he had to talk about sports. He, he had to be informed about this. This is 1 Corinthians 9, 25, and 27. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, he says. That suggests discipline, doesn't it? They do it to receive a perishable wreath. He's talking about a laurel wreath or crown. 
but we an imperishable. So, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. In other words, he says, I, I, don't, sh- I don't shadow box like nothing's going on. I just don't beat the air. But I discipline, there's the word, I discipline my body and keep it under control. So Paul talks about intense, energetic sweat to run the race and fight the fight. Now, when you go back to this classic text in 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, verse 7, You read right after that when he says in that classic phrase in 4.7, train yourself for godliness or work out for godliness, exercise for godliness. He comments and he says just after that, for this we labor and strive. That's the Apostle Paul. He's saying that's apostolic we. For this we apostles and disciples labor and strive. That is, our discipline for godliness. And this word labor means to uh, strenuous toil and strive means to agonize. Toil and agony. To do this. Now, when a man seriously trains, you guys heard of the 10,000 hour principle? Have you heard about that? It's basically a principle that Matthew Sayed and others have evoked. They say if you will strenuously work at anything for 10,000 hours, that's what it will take to really get good. So 10,000 hours practice on the piano is probably what we saw here. 10,000 hours in the basketball court. 10,000 hours on the tennis court like Andre Agassi hitting 1 million tennis balls a year. You know, Mozart, 10,000 hours before he really did begin to achieve that 10,000-hour principle. So there's a sense in which uh, a man can run 10,000 miles to run 100 meters at his best. So when you transfer it over the Christian life, no discipline, no discipleship. Now, This is just a generalization because I don't know anybody here. This is a broad generalization. Don't take it personally, anybody. In today's world and church, disciplined Christian lives are the exception, not the rule. You say, why? And I can give you some common sense reasons, um, such as poor teaching, on the topic where you say we're, we're all under grace, we don't, we, don't, we don't discipline ourselves, we just let go and let Jesus, you know. But I think that the main thing is a conscious rejection because of the fear of legalism. None of us want to be legalists, do we? None of us want to go back under the law, do we? I mean, we've been delivered from the law, we've been delivered from works. But what happens when you hear the word discipline, it transmutes in your mind as legalism. But discipline and legalism are two different things altogether. I'll tell you why. The legalist says, I will do this thing in order to merit reward or status or position before God. That's what a legalist does. But discipline says, I love God, and I will therefore discipline myself. And you say, is that that right? Well, listen to this. The Apostle Paul hated legalism. I mean, some of the strongest language in Scripture comes from the Apostle Paul in Galatians, the first chapter, when he's talking about the legalistic Judaizers who preached a different gospel, and he said, if anyone preaches a different gospel, what does he say? Yeah, let them be cursed, accursed, damned, he says. That is how he regarded legalism. The same apostle Paul who said, let the legalist be accursed, said, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. 
I mean, he'd fought the legalist bare knuckle all the way across Asia Minor. He was always fighting with legalism and Judaism. But he said, Paul says, discipline yourself for the purposes of godliness. There's another text in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, where he says, here you have grace used about three times, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And the grace of God was not ineffectual in me. No, I worked more than all the rest. The grace of God affects a discipline. So now he says in our text, train, discipline, work out to be godly. So men, don't confuse legalism and discipline. They're two different things altogether with different motivations altogether. But I can't overemphasize the importance of this call to spiritual discipline. Now listen, listen to this. Look at, at to verses uh, 7 and 8 of First Timothy 4. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training... I get it, I get it right. For a bodily training is of some value... Godliness is a value in every way as it holds promise for this present life and for the life to come. So what he's saying, so when he talk about you, you're not going to get anywhere without discipline, whether or not we have discipline ourselves will make a huge difference in this life and the life to come. He's talking about spiritually. I think about I think about myself as a pastor. We think about ourselves as pastors. To a great extent, by the grace of God, our discipline in studying the Word, our discipline in prayer, our discipline in living as we ought to live, our discipline in leadership will make all the difference. Isn't that right, Pastor? It's true. I mean, you're not going to get anywhere in the ministry without discipline. I'm not going to be able to preach the word if I won't spend the hours sitting in my study looking like I'm doing nothing. Praying, agonizing, thinking, analyzing, praying, saying, Lord, help me. Isn't going to happen. And when I think about the church, I think about the men here. It's so great to be with you men and be singing. Isn't it great to hear male voices all together singing together? It's just a great thing to hear. When I think about the church, we're all members of one another, the Scriptures say. And because we're members of one another in the body of Christ, when we are sinful, unconfessed sin, we're kind of like an undertow to the body of Christ. But when we're full of spirit, Walking with, with uh, Christ, we're like a rising tide, an incoming tide. I mean, it makes a difference, doesn't it? We're all members of one another. When one goes down, we go down. When one goes up, the other goes up. And then I think about a, a, a marriage. Men, uh, this matter of discipline for godliness can uh, determine the whole trajectory of your children's lives. Just that alone. I mean, our children are sinners anyway, you know, but you understand what I mean. And it's huge. We can scar our children or we can elevate our grandchildren. So spiritual discipline holds huge promise for this present life. Now, marriage, family, church, everything. And the life to come well, spiritual discipline builds on the enduring foundation of Christ and what it puts on there, and I'm speaking metaphorically, but as the Scriptures speak in 1 Corinthians 3, gold and silver and precious stones built upon the foundation of Christ. Now, I think about that. I think about how fast this life goes. At uh, 76 
And I'm moving up to 75. Well, young, young men, I don't have that much longer to go. Do I? That isn't all bad, is it? In fact, it's all good. Can you imagine? And I'm probably going to see it in the next, I don't know, five years, ten years. I don't know. But I'm going to draw my last breath, and what am I going to do? I'm going to look at the face of Jesus. What's the first minute going to be like? What are the first five minutes? The first day? Well, maybe they don't have days there because it says he's the sun, right? The light's everything in eternity. But can you imagine? He says it holds Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for it holds promise for this present life, how we live now, and the life to come. That's God's word. That's what it says. Well, you get the best of both worlds <laughs> through spiritual discipline. Now, I, I want to say that this word discipline may raise the feeling of confining, constraint in some minds. I mean, discipline is kind of a claustrophobic word, discipline. Exercise, work out. But nothing can be farther from the truth. I think of Ernest Hemingway. Uh, he was indeed an alcoholic. He, got, he drank a, a quart of whiskey a day. But when it came to writing, he was disciplined as can be, at least in the morning, when he would stand uh, in his loafers at a desk like this, and he would write 500 words a day, and he was so disciplined in the way he wrote. Next to Shakespeare, he has the greatest influence on the English language, the modern English language of anyone, in his eco economy of uh, choice of words. Or you take the billion sketches of the Renaissance artists, and then you see the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, or Churchill's painstaking preparation of speeches freed him to give those seemingly impromptu speeches and then those brilliant speeches that withstood the Fuhrer in his rhetoric on the other side of the channel. The disciplined drudgery of the musical greats released their genius. It just goes on and on and on in Brothers. Spiritual discipline frees us from the gravity of this present age and allows our lives to, to rise and soar. You know, when I, when I uh, originally penned these words, this whole thing on discipline for godliness, I, I had uh, I'd been doing a series on disciplines, and I was preaching them at Ed, Edmund Chapel at uh, Wheaton College. And I was kind of making them up as I went. Well, let's have, let's have a discipline for this, a discipline for that. And um, that was nearly a quarter of a century ago when I, when I wrote that. And uh, in the following years, then I preached through 1 Timothy, and I began to understand what was going on in the context of this book. And this even became more alive. Because the whole context in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and on to the end of the book, Paul is calling for the church to become godly for the sake of the gospel. And uh, uh, this, this first mention of godly or godliness in 1 Timothy is in the second chapter, verses 1 and 2, where Paul opens, and I'm reading verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, where he says, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, notice the word, godly and dignified in every way. And his purpose for that in the following verses, I want you to lead a godly, dignified life in every way, so that the gospel will spread. 
For God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, it says. That there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So he calls for godliness, culminating in verse 7. And then what he does, in verse 8, he calls for godly conduct in four successive groups of people. And I want you to listen very closely to this. He calls for godly conduct from men, godly conduct from women, godly conduct for overseers slash elders, and godly conduct for deacons. And I'll explain. In chapter 2, verse 8, in respect to men in general, Paul says very briefly in verse 8 of chapter 2, I desire then in every place men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Well, Paul assumes that men would lift up their hands in prayer because that's how ancient men prayed. In New Testament times, they, they raised their hands like this and they prayed. So his concern was not that they have the correct body posture because that's the way they prayed, but his concern for his prayers for all people is to be offered from hearts that were uncompromised by anger and quarreling. And other from, words from godly hearts. That's what he says to men. And then he has even more explicit instruction to the conduct of women in verses 9 through 14, where he says they should dress modestly, and I quote, with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. And then he says women must learn quietly and not to exercise authority over a man in the church. That's what it says thus honoring the creation order. That's how he wants women to live for the sake of the gospel. That's in verses 9 through 14. And then overseers, you could could, uh, say elders, he turns his attention to that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, where he gives that famous list of qualification for elders. If you just want a shorthand to sum it all up, godly elders for the church. Their lives ought to adorn the gospel in the church before a lost world. And then, about deacons, in chapter 3, 8 through 13, he gives a parallel list for, for deacons equally daunting and equally requiring. Godly deacons. So he said, I want godly men, godly women, godly elders, godly deacons. And then he sums everything up about men and women and overseers and deacons in verses 14 and 15. He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things. That's what he said about the men, the women, the elders and the deacons to you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave, godly behavior in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So here you have to note, that the theme of Timothy is godly behavior for the sake of the church and the gospel. Godliness for the gospel. That is what he's concerned about. Now, if you're following this, and I, I realize I'm getting, uh, just giving the train of argument here with that driving theme that I'm telling you how to conduct yourselves in the church of God with that arc articulated, you get this explosive declaration almost totally unexpected in verse 16, where he holds up Christ as the very mystery of godliness in that creedal confession. So you see it in verse 16? He says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Who is that? That's Jesus. Because he goes on to say about Jesus, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, taken up in glory. Now, whenever the Apostle Paul uses the word mystery, he talks about what was unknown in the past but was revealed in Jesus Christ as to salvation. And he says, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Now, I want to say it means more 
than, and I, I don't know how to put it another way, than the theological content of the gospel, the mystery of godliness, in that driving context in First Timothy where godliness is urged on men and women and elders and deacons in the church, it points to a pattern of life drawn from the gospel. In fact, conduct in verse 14 is a synonym for godliness. And ultimately, listen, it points to Christ himself as the essence and source of godly conduct, that Jesus Christ is the key to the righteous life of saints and that he modeled it for all to see and he imputed his righteousness and gave it on the cross to us. So the call, men, to godly conduct is not to pursue a self-generated bootstrap, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It is none of that at all. It is called to live out in Christ the incredible realities of the gospel and godliness. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ is the burning essence of godliness. He's like its radiating atomic core pulsing with godliness. In his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, the mystery of godliness was unfolded before the universe. That's, that's the meaning of that confession that follows. And by virtue of Christ's saving grace, all who believe in him have been united with him, so we share in his godliness. His godly record becomes ours by grace. And the thankful response of regenerated hearts is to live out the godliness that Christ embodied. So, Paul's call to godliness in 1 Timothy is thus both gospel-generated and gospel-sustained. And if you have Christ, you possess and are possessed by the very mystery of godliness, and you can live out this mystery. It's phenomenal. Now, I've been showing the logic here, but I didn't say, I didn't quote verses 4, 1 through 5. Because you go, what, what is that about? Because what he does, he talks about people that had ascetic disciplines in order to gain godliness, namely refraining from marriage and eating certain foods they thought would make them godly. And he just clouds up and rains on that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and calls it the teaching of demons. Then when he gets done with that, you come to the classic passage on spiritual discipline, which is this, the, uh, the center of this. And you, this is 1 Timothy 4, 6, 7, 8, 9, and so on. And 25 years ago, when I first studied this, I put a mental picture of my two sons. Uh, my, my namesake, Richard K. Hughes, Kent, my son, my other son, William Carey Hughes, note the good Baptist name. It goes by Carey. And then my son-in-law, Jeff, and my son-in-law, Brian. I kind of mentally put photos of them on the desk in front of me and said, I'm going to pretend like I've got a cup of coffee and I'm going to impart to these men what they need to know about spiritual discipline. That, that's what I did in those years ago. And... Uh, I assembled some 17 disciplines. When they're for godliness, they're ultimately speaking about sanctification, holiness, godliness, holiness. So I had things like purity and marriage and fatherhood and mind and devotion and prayer and so on. Well, in the years that followed, I had the call of preaching, as I said, through the pastorals. This is one of the great things of preaching through a book of the Bible. You begin to see everything in its context. You begin to see how it works. And my eyes just opened as to what was going on about this matter of spiritual discipline. And I came to see that godly conduct is to be co consonant and consistent with the preceding directives given to the church here in 1 Timothy to men, women, elders, deacons, the whole church and how they conduct themselves and in Christ, and I saw that it was radically Christ 
centered. Focus upon Jesus. So you can see this is not going in the way of legalism, is it? I'm not talking about legalism, am I? For every man, godliness flows of having been regenerated by Christ and loving him with everything that is within us. That's where it comes from. Fulfilling the greatest commandment. Jesus said this is the greatest commandment. I'm quoting Matthew 22, 32. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That's where godliness is rooted, in love for him. I have uh, I've thought about uh, the final chapter, the final chapters of the book of John. And uh, you know, when Peter stands before Jesus, he comes out of the water, there's Jesus standing on the seashore, he's cooked him a fish breakfast on, on the shores of Tiberias, and he asks him three times if he loves him. Remember? He asks him, and I think in penetrating depth, it gets more intense as he goes. But he asks him three times, and Peter's standing there, and from our point of view, Jesus knows the Fahrenheit of Peter's soul. He knows everything. And I think it's a really a great practice to stand there and imagine yourself standing for Jesus, and Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Do you really love truly love me. And he knows. You don't want to lie. He knows. He knows the temperature of your soul and to answer. So the first thing in life is to love him with all our being so that the sun rises and sets on Christ and he fills all our horizons. So godliness focuses upon what Christ, the mystery of godliness has done, is celebrated in the lines of that hymn to talk about his basically his incarnation, everything to his resurrection. Very significantly, where the Apostle Paul commands, this is in Philippians 2, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He then talks about Jesus' uh, super humiliation. Although he exists in the form of God, he took on the form of man and being humbled. You know the whole thing. And then his super exaltation. If we desire to have the mind of Christ and live a godly life after him, he has to fill all our horizons. This is the ground, brothers, of living a godly life. We must keep the Lord Jesus Christ, the flaming essence of godliness, the radiating atomic nuclear core of godliness before our minds because it was and in through his incarnation, death, and resurrection that the mystery of godliness was manifested to the universe. I just want to say, I think I've made the case that spiritually, discipline is of immense importance to your life. Vast importance to sanctification. So let me just read that text again. In 1 Timothy 4, 7 and following. Rather, he says, train yourself, work out your, for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. So he says, we're not going to get anywhere spiritually without discipline. And then what does he say? Look at the next line. He said, the same is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In other words, the same, discipline yourself for the purposes of godliness, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He says, take it to heart. That's a trustworthy statement. It's worthy of all, all acceptance. And then he says, for this we, apostles and disciples toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, 
especially all those who believe. So I'm just laying the ground for sanctification here and discipline. Uh, again, the words of the Apostle Paul, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I work more than all the rest. It is the grace of God at work within us. It comes from the radiating core of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the mystery of godliness, who has regenerated us, dwells in our hearts, works by the Holy Spirit, and it is a matter of, of depending upon him and allowing him to discipline us for the purpose of godliness. That's the ground. So I, I've delivered it as best I can, that great teaching in its context, and may, may it penetrate and sink into our hearts. Allow me to pray. Our gracious Lord, as we uh, began this evening with the reflection of the hundreds of man-hours that are sitting here, and men, all kinds of men, men of different abilities, different backgrounds, uh, different situations, all gathered together here. But the one unifying thing is, as believers, they're all united in Christ, who is the mystery of godliness, the burning core of godliness. And we pray, God, that because it is your will, because it's been commanded, because this is not a suggestion, it is a command to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, that this command would permeate each man's life and those particular disciplines that need to be engaged in in order to bring them to spiritual maturity would begin to get affected. I pray that, that this very word of this command, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, would penetrate every heart here. And the truth that it holds promise for this life right now and the life to come. And this is a faithful and trustworthy saying worthy of all acceptance. Branded into these men's hearts, my heart, and God bless us as we consider these things and, and go on from here tomorrow to consider what, we, what needs to happen in our minds and in our souls and what needs to happen in the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.